chapter 19. If you would, I will bring the first message as we've been doing the last few weeks. And uh, Pastor Gary will bring the second message for you this morning. I begin looking at Luke chapter 19. The presentation of Jesus. So as we celebrate Easter, or Resurrection Sunday next week, we talk about the resurrection, but what happened, what led up to the resurrection? Why did the resurrection have to come? And before Easter Sunday came the promises and the prophecies of salvation and judgment and cleansing and restoration. And that's what we want to look at this morning. <clears throat> I'm not really a fire and brimstone kind of preacher, but this morning it's a fire and brimstone kind of sermon. In, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus presents himself, this, the title presentation, it won't be looking at the whole chapter, only a couple of sections, but he presents himself first in the first ten verses in the story of Zacchaeus as a saving seeker to the lost and destroyed. The next section, he presents himself as a master and king of all things to whom we must give account. The next section, he presents himself as a lowly and humble Lord, worthy of exaltation and praise. And then the last section, which I'll look at as well, he presents himself as a cleanser and restorer, cleansing of all that is evil, and a renewer and a restorer of everything unto perfection and to eternal life. So I'd like to look at the two bookends, the first portion about Zacchaeus, but it's not really about Zacchaeus, and the last section, verses 41 through 48. So first of all, we see that chapter 19 is representing, as we can tell, the two ends of man. Some commentators have said, and I agree, that the whole gospel of Luke could be put into one verse, one verse, it's chapter 19, verse 10. You know the story of Zacchaeus, so we'll finish. You already know that. So what does Jesus say at the end of the story of Zacchaeus? He said in verse 10, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. And verse 10, For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, in our English versions, again, it, it, we, it comes across so simply and not often with the full power, like John was mentioning today in his Sunday school class. What does that verse mean? It's rich. It's powerful. And in this context, we're going to see the seriousness of what is required of us. Jesus came to seek. He's a seeker. But it's not like he's looking for something like he doesn't know what he's looking for or he's just wandering around looking for something. The concept of to seek there means to require and demand. Christ is, re is reaching out and seeking and investigating so as to reach a binding solution to seek in order to demand. Christ is demanding an answer from the world, from the people of who he is. He demands it from you and he, and he will get an answer from you and me and the world. He, will, he has his answer and he'll get his answer. Christ is demanding an answer from all men. Literally, it says after that, that he is looking to save that was lost. Literally, it's saying that he wants to save that having been lost. All of man is lost. It doesn't mean he's wandering around again looking for someone saying, Oh, excuse me, are you lost? Can I help you find your way? No, it doesn't mean that. Actually, uh, to save means to preserve and to rescue. The word there for saving means to deliver out of danger and into safety. To rescue from destruction and to be brought into divine safety. To rescue from danger and to bring safely forth. So principally it's used of God rescuing believers from the penalty and the power of sin and into his protection and safety. What is your legal status today before God? That's what I'd like to ask you today. What's your legal status? Meaning, are you delivered out of safety or are you still in a state of destruction? Because that is the way Jesus is describing it, you'll see. 
What is your legal status? You're not waiting to get to the pearly gates. You're not waiting to... So much sad, so many in the world today who don't know him live like this. I hope when I die and I go stand before my maker that he looks at me and sees that I've done good enough that maybe he'll let me into heaven. What a horrendous way to die. But that's how most of our world lives. The sad thing is it's already decided for them what's going to happen. It's already decided. And it's this. Destruction is waiting all men until they are saved out of it. John in his gospel, we all like to talk about John 3.16, but John 3.18 says that whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Not waiting to be condemned, condemned right now. In other words, the world is really men walking dead. Spiritually dead. Men and women walking dead. We were walking dead before he delivered us out of destruction as we put our faith in him. And he called us out of that destruction. There's really two kinds of people in the world. Those that are saved out of destruction and those that are still in it. Those waiting the culmination of that fullness of destruction in an eternal hell, which is uncomfortable. The two types, Gary mentioned one time, those who die in their sins and those who die forgiven of their sins. Jesus said to the Pharisees, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. And that's a horrible way to die in your sins. That's judgment. There are two types of people in the world. John, John says, the, the apostle, they're children of God and children of the devil. And it's so hard for us to know, outwardly. There's no such thing as a semi-man of destruction, semi-righteous, semi-wicked. I'm not talking about our daily life. I'm talking about our legal status before God. There's no gray areas with God. When the angels come, who are the harvesters of this age, Jesus said, there'll be no wondering. The angels won't say, well, who is... This one is a good fish, bad fish. This one is a goat. This one is a sheep. Do you know? The angels will know. They're the harvesters. They come. <clears throat> and there's no partiality with them. The angels will know who's the sheep, who's the goat, and they know who to pick and who to leave behind. For judgment. We have to be rescued out of that. The word lost, by the way, when he says to rescue, he seeks to save those lost means having been lost now into a state of destruction. One of the definitions is this persisting and resultant death being viewed as certain to destroy, fully destroy, cutting off entirely permanent, absolute destruction. So when we say someone's lost, it comes across as Oh, they're lost. No, no, it means they're destroyed. As a matter of fact, the original word there in the Greek language is the word we get for the the word named the devil. The devil in Revelation is called Apollyon, which means the destroyer. Right? This word here for lost is the word, the root word for Apollyon, meaning to be destroyed, to go into destruction. To die with implication of ruin, another definition, by experiencing a miserable end. Jesus spoke often of hell. Often. He spoke of it as a place where the worm never dies, the fires never quenched. A place where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. A place of eternal fire. A separation of two groups. He came to die for the penalty of his people. And this has been consistent through the Bible. He is holy. We have sin. We are set apart for destruction until we are rescued out of the destruction. And only he can take us out of that pit. We don't like to think of hell. Who does? But that's our destiny. The destiny is eternal life of all men. It's appointed on all men to die once. But after this, the judgment. God is the great separator. And Jesus spoke of this coming judgment. And notice that he came first, foremost, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then secondly, unto the world at large. These prophecies speak of 
coming to the people of Israel and unto the world. Now go to the end of chapter 19 and read, start with verse 41. I'll read it with you. In verse 41 it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, If you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Now listen to these next verses. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And it did happen in AD 70 at first. Listen, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. Your children. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And just go on a few more verses. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Other passages tell us that Jesus made a court of whips and he started whipping the, the sheep and the animals and drove them out. And, and the money changers, their tables fell over and all the coins were rolling around and chaos, utter chaos with Jesus at the front of it. We don't like to see Jesus violent. We're not comfortable with that. We don't like to hear him talking about children being killed within walls. That's not, we like the Jesus who comes riding on the young colt. And that's true. He does ride. He is a lamb. But the second time he comes, he comes as a lion. A lion. Revelation says, spare us from the wrath of the lamb. (laughs) He has both parts. He's a lamb who's full of wrath when he comes to judge. He's the lion who comes on a white horse, whose name is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he destroys with the breath of his mouth, and he burns the entire earth from shore to shore. All the cities, London, Paris, all of them destroyed, burned until it's burned to an end, and then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. It's violence that he'll bring, utter violence. But for now it is hidden. It seems in our world he's hidden intentionally, intentionally so that the world cannot know him at large. But we know him. He even sends delusions, it says in the last days, sending delusions that they'll believe a lie. He told about the Pharisees to leave them alone, that they were blind guides. It says here in Matthew chapter three, you don't have to turn, I'll read it for you. John the Baptist said something astounding. Even before Jesus was baptized, he said this about Jesus coming. John the Baptist said his, Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. His wheat is the people of God. The chaff is those that are still in destruction. His winnowing fork. Jesus has a winnowing fork. He throws the grain up in the air and the wheat and the grain falls to the ground and the chaff blows away or it's gathered and burned. John said that before he was even baptized. Secondly, he tells us in Malachi chapter 3 about the coming time. John the Baptist mentioned, I will send my messenger who prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. That's Jesus first coming. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. But here's the second coming in the next verse. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he, the Christ, the Messiah, appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And then in Malachi chapter 4, still speaking of Christ's coming. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day is coming that it will be set on fire, says the Lord. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. 
But you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out, go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. These days are coming into the world, even though right now it appears quiet and the world seems to have its way. And the Lord allows their sins to become full, the measure of their sins filling up. God has a timetable. He's a judge, but a very good judge, very careful. And he'll, he'll let the measure of the sin come to its point. When it's finished, he comes to judge. <clears throat> and again, he came first to the house of Israel. It says in Luke chapter 23, and this was kind of fascinating, on his way to the cross, it tells us that Simon the Cyrene was ordered by the, 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 the soldiers to take up the cross of Christ. So Christ is already beaten and whipped and, and severely injured on his way to the cross. And he saw women crying for him, women mourning for him. And he has this astounding statement he makes to them. And you know it probably before I say it or I'll still say it. In Luke chapter 23, verse 27, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. But Jesus turned to them and he said, daughters of Jerusalem, he said, don't weep for me. He said, weep for yourselves and your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women. The wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. They will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What will happen when the time of judgment is due? How much more worse will it be for you? These poor women are crying for Jesus. He said, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves and your children. It's coming. It came. It came and it's coming. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, I'll close with this passage in Acts 3, verse 18. It doesn't end at the cross. It didn't end at the resurrection. It doesn't at the, end the, at the ascension. It won't end until he comes back and he's, his time is his time. Listen to what Acts 3, Peter said. Speaking of the death of Christ, Peter said this in Acts chapter 3. This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold to all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so your sins may be wiped out and the times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah. That's the second time now. He may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him. Heaven must receive Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father now, but present with us, in us, through, in, in this Holy Spirit. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through the prophets at the restoration. It says the restoration of all things. Peter's talking about a future time that's called the restoration of all things. You know what that means? Everything's going to be restored. It's going to be burned first, Peter said. Just burned to the atoms, the entire earth. And the universe, maybe. The new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We shall escape judgment and we shall enjoy restoration. Restoration means to be made fully new, even better. Many scholars believe, and, and I would agree with this too, why not? That at the restoration of all things, that we will live in a place, which we would call heaven, which is better than the Garden of Eden ever was. Where there will be a true theocracy, a pure theocracy, with God ruling as it should have been. As it always was meant to be. There will be a restoration and it's coming. But first must come a judgment and that's coming. So I ask you today, where are you legally? What's your status before God? Are you in destruction? Or are you coming and been saved out of destruction through faith in him? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Hide not your hearts. You're still alive today on this earth. If you don't know him, if you can't confidently say that you're rescued out of destruction, then I can tell you right now, you're in destruction. You need to be rescued out of destruction. Don't hide in your hearts today while you still have life on this earth to breathe and before you have to meet him. 
Luke, Luke chapter 22. Let me remind you that we've been taking some snapshots of Jesus as He makes His journey to go ultimately to the cross, to the grave, and then to the throne in resurrection power. What a story. There's no story like the Gospel in all of human history. All the literature that men have read, written or read, nothing can compare to the Gospel story. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 19, beginning verse, excuse me, chapter 22, verse 39. It begins like this. And he came out and went as it was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. In our previous messages, we've heard about the baptism of Jesus when the Spirit descended upon Him and the voice of the Father said, This is My beloved Son. We've seen Jesus then in the synagogue opening up the Scriptures, reading the passage in Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon Me. And all eyes were upon Him that day. We've seen Him with the disciples in the upper room taking the role of the lowliest of servants, washing the feet of the disciples. Then we moved on to the place where the woman with the alabaster box broke it and poured ointment on his head, preparing his body for burial. And we have heard our brother this morning speak about Jesus' triumphant entrance, as they call it, into Jerusalem, when they were praising him and saying, Hallelujah! Hail him, King of kings! And now we're moving closer to the cross. The shadow of Calvary is beginning now to cast its shadow on the pathway. Jesus is getting nearer to the moment that all eternity was hinging upon. This was the time when those passages of Old Testament Scriptures began to ring in His ears in the loudest of pitches. When He heard verses like, It pleased the Lord to bruise Him or that He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. Passages like in Psalm 22, when on the cross Jesus would cry out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Why are You so far from helping Me? And from the words of My roaring, I cry in the daytime and You hear not, and in the night season and am not silent. And on and on, those passages were drilled into the depths of His mind as He's now just Yards away, as it were, from the place where He would be crucified. Charles Spurgeon writes that in the Gospel, John John describes Him as having four days before His passion these words, Now is my soul troubled. As He saw the gathering clouds, He hardly knew where to turn. And He cried out, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Matthew writes of him, he began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. What a thought, my brethren, that our blessed Lord should be driven to the very verge of distraction by the intensity of His anguish. Matthew represents the Savior Himself as saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. 
encompassed, encircled, overwhelmed with grief. He was plunged, plunged head and ears in sorrow and had no breathing hole. Sin leaves no cranny for comfort to enter. And therefore, the sin-bearer must be entirely immersed in woe. Mark records that he began to be severely amazed and to be very heavy. Amazement like that of Moses when he exceedingly feared and trembled. O blessed Savior, how can we bear to think of You as a man astonished and alarmed? Yet, it was even so when the terrors of God set themselves in array against you. Luke uses the strong language, quote, being in an agony. These expressions, each of them worthy to be the theme of a discourse, are quite sufficient to show that the grief of the Savior was the most of the most extraordinary character well justifying the prophetic exclamation, Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which was done to me. He stands before us peerless in misery. No one was molested by the powers of evil as He was, as if the powers of hell had given orders to their legions. Fight neither with small nor great, except only with the king himself. It's at this point when his father began to withdraw himself from his presence. The shadow of the great eclipse began to fall upon his spirit when he knelt in that cold midnight amidst the olives of Gethsemane. The sensible comforts which he had cheered, which had cheered his spirits were taken away. That blessed application of promises which Christ Jesus needed as a man was removed. All that we understand by the term consolations of God were hidden from his eyes. He was left single-handed in his weakness to contend for deliverance of man. The Lord stood by as if He were an indifferent spectator. Or rather, as if He were an adversary. He wounded Him with the wound of an enemy. With the chastisement of a cool one. True one. Brothers and sisters, do you get this? Does this not grip you? Adam Clark, a famed commentator, in the early 1800s, said that Jesus suffered more in Gethsemane than at Golgotha. That's a shocking statement. I don't quite agree with that, but I must say we have undermined what went on in Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means olive press. This was the place of the highest anxiety man ever knew in any time of all of human history. Can you imagine the anxiety that Abraham must have, must have felt when he came to the point when he had to lift his hand and bring it down upon his son in obedience to God's request to offer up his son? We could go through the Bible and you can maybe go through your own lives and think of times when you had something very fearful ahead of you. Maybe it was an operation in sight. Maybe you've known somebody that was diagnosed and if it was you that was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. If you know anything about that disease, you know that you have a miserable, miserable future ahead of you for you to die. Jesus knew perfectly well what was ahead for Him. He knew the schedule perfectly. He had said over and over again, My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And now He's saying, The hour is come. 
Father, glorify Thyself. We see the full manhood of Jesus in perfect bloom in Gethsemane. The only rational explanation how Jesus could possibly be praying in a way that He would be able to avoid going to the cross. The Bible describes Jesus as the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Talk about perplexities. Talk about antinomies or what we would call maybe contradictions. This would be one of the highest orders. Jesus is praying in an agony, Father, if it be possible, take away this cup from me. Spurgeon says that he believes that the atonement was going on in Gethsemane. Another statement that could be questioned as well. But nevertheless, I appreciate commentators like Clark and Spurgeon and others that have zoomed in on Gethsemane that we seem to pass over oftentimes. And this is why during this Easter season, it is good for us to visit the Mount of Olives and to behold the Lamb on His knees, on His face, on the ground, sweating drops of blood to the ground. No punctured wounds, no stabbings, no spear going through His side. Explain to me, medical world, how it's possible. Well, there is medical documentation of cases where people have actually, under the greatest and highest stresses known to man, have been in such agony, in such anxiety over some particular matter that they have actually oozed blood out of their capillaries. There's a medical term for it. I'm not even going to try to describe it or to, uh, to uh, pronounce it. But there is a medical term. This is not a fictional story. This is a reality. Jesus bled in prayer. We gotta stop and have a silah, brothers and sisters. This is a sobering moment. Jesus is lingering in the shadows of the cross that lays before him. He's imagining what's going to take place. He was fully aware that the waters of judgment came over the generation of Noah's day in the world of the ungodly. He was there when the fire and brimstone from heaven came down and destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was there when angels that sinned, God didn't spare and cast them down to hell. And now Jesus' turn, and He's about to step into the winepress of God's judgment. It was one thing to be tortured by man. It was one thing to get nails in His hands, crown a thorn on His head, His beard plucked from off of His face, a spear piercing His side, stark naked, many commentators believe. No wonder the book of Hebrews said about Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Who would want to be naked, period, before an audience? But the King of kings and the Lord of lords knew full well what a crucifixion would be like. This had been instituted, by the way, in human history, possibly less than 80 years prior to Christ's crucifixion. There was no known way, means of putting a criminal to death by crucifixion beforehand. It was actually came into human history through the Persians. The Romans picked it up and they utilized that. For the most serious of criminals... Jesus was nailed to the cross as a serious criminal. Jesus didn't have to guess what was going to happen. You don't know what the future holds, do you, for yourself? You don't know how you're going to die, when you're going to die. Thank God we don't know the future. 
We can't know the future. But the one who had all foreknowledge, who knew all things before they ever happened, was in Gethsemane, meditating, dwelling upon Golgotha. The greater Moses was hearing the rumbles of Calvary. And like Moses, he began to tremble and shake. The flames of God's judgment were bustling in his mind. The sound of the thunders of God's judgment against sin were reverberating in his conscience. The greater than Aaron was about to enter into the holiest with his own blood and provide an atonement that would satisfy God's holy standards once and for all. See, never a man prayed like this man. Never a man cried like this man. Never a man shed tears like this man. Never a man agonized like this man. Brothers and sisters, this is our Savior. Do you not love Him for what He did for us? Can you understand, can we empathize with our Lord when He was on His knees, face down on the ground, praying to the Father, take this cup away from me. Think of that cup. Peter, remember, in defense for the Lord Jesus, took a sword and he swiped one of the high priest's servants' ear off. And Jesus said, put, up, put your sword back in your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father hath given me? What were the ingredients of that cup? What did it contain? The cup was deep. The cup was deep, dark. The the cup contained all the punishment that was due to our sins. The greater than David was about to step into the battlefield ring and destroy the champion. Jesus didn't just go to the cross for the penalty of sin, but He went there to demonstrate His power against the evil one, the devil himself. John says that He was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. You remember when Jesus was driven into the wilderness after the baptism, and Satan comes and tempts Him three different times. And afterwards it says, And Satan left him for a season. When did he come back? When did Satan come back? Because it says it left him, the spirit, uh, the demon, the devil left him temporarily. He had intentions of returning. Spurgeon says he returned here in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the powers of hell and all the evil of mankind was now raising itself in its ugly head to the heights and was staring Jesus right in the face. The devil tempting Him. Yes, pray Jesus that you will not have to drink that cup. Jesus in His humanity felt what laid before Him. If He didn't pray a prayer like this, we would never understand the humanity of Jesus, the way it ought to be understood. He was 100% man. And there's no one that doesn't fear not only dying, but the manner in which he would die. Can you imagine what it must have been for martyrs who knew and saw maybe the martyr before them go uh, to the guillotines or to go and be burnt in a stack of wood live or to be drowned, nailed to a post and put on a on the shore as the waves uh, comes up and the tide rises and the water overflows the head and drowns the victim. Jesus was a martyr of martyrs. He suffered beyond description. He has three of His disciples with Him. They had been with Him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw His glory. They saw Him transfigured before their eyes. What a sight that must have been. 
They don't have the luxury this time to be in His company. It's as if Jesus was saying, this is beyond your capability of understanding. You will not grasp it. They did not hear the prayers of Jesus in Gethsemane. Praise God, you and I get to go in that closet and hear the secrets of Jesus' communion and com- con- uh, uh, correspondence with His Father in heaven. The cup was filled to overflowing. The cup was spiked with our sins. The cup was deep in the dregs of darkness. It contained the crushed iniquities of our law-breakings. All contained in that cup. Father, if it be possible... Brothers and sisters, he's praying in an agony. It says in the book of Hebrew that he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto Him that was able to save Him from death. Praying with strong crying and tears. What is strong crying? How many of us have cried before God to answer prayer? I've been with some of you when tears have been shed over losing a loved one or wishing for a reversal. Some people have prayed that God would resurrect their loved one. Jesus prayed with strong crying and tears. Brothers and sisters, we are all moved by the cross. And rightfully so. When we see Christ on Calvary and we think, what manner of man is this? The King of kings and Lord of lords suffering the wrath of God and darkness falling upon Him, spit upon and mocked and jeered. Our hearts are moved. We say like the hymn writer, was it for me, for me alone, the Savior left His glorious throne, the dazzling splendors of the sky? Was it for me, the Savior died? We look at the cross in our maze that He would die for me. Do you believe that He died for you? Do you believe that when He said, Father, take away this cup, that your sins were the contents of that cup? That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings are drought for me. Was that cup drank for your sins? If this means nothing to you, you are hell bound. You are a lost sinner. You would be out of place in heaven. You wouldn't be able to look on the marks of Calvary and have any affection for the Son of God. I plead with you, is it anything to you that passed by? We're not even at the cross. We're hours before the cross. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're getting a little purview of what Jesus is anticipating at the cross when He's pleading with God, Father, if it be possible, take away this cup from me. I can't put it in the same wording and with the same tremors with the same anxieties that Jesus was saying this with, we can only imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to be in this place called Gethsemane, praying about what was ahead for Him. The elect from all ages were banking on the Son of Man coming through for Him, for them. Our salvation depended on that cup being drank by the Lord Jesus. The weight of our sins were being loaded on the shoulders of our mighty Samson who was about to break the bars of hell that held us captive in bondage and to send us on our way to the promised land. What an hour. What an occasion. Jesus said, this is your hour in the power of darkness. The guilty ones were waiting in the cities of refuge. 
that were chock full, waiting for what? The high priest to die. Do you remember that? Reading it in Joshua and in Numbers and Deuteronomy. When a man committed a murder, he was entitled to flee as fast as he could away from the avenger of blood. If he had killed a man whose brother was in the area, it was the brother's prerogative to chase that individual, that murderer. And if he possibly could get a hold of him before he reached the city of refuge, he had the rights to kill him in the anger that he had in seeking vengeance for his brother's murder. There were six cities, equidistant, three on the east of the Jordan, three on the west. Wherever murder was committed, there was a place that a murderer could go. Murderers, though, particularly, that didn't do it intentionally. What was Jesus' prayer on the cross? Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. We didn't know what we were doing when we said, away with this man. Let him be crucified. Give us Barabbas, but take Jesus and crucify him. Oh, we didn't know what we were doing. Thank you, God, for your pity upon our ignorance and sparing us from judgment and allowing us to wait in the city of refuge until the high priest steps on the terrain. The greatest of the glory of above, Jesus from the ivory palace descends upon this globe as a merciful and great high priest. With what intention? For this cause came I unto this hour. You were in the city of refuge and I was in the city of refuge. We were waiting and longing and needing what we didn't know would be the answer and solution to our Liberty, it was when our great high priest would die on the cross. Jesus cries out, not my will, but thine be done. He bowed to the commission that he was given by God. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Not just obedient unto death. But the death of the cross. The cross is the most despicable place on the globe in the worst way on earth to be put to death. A cross hung up there before the eyes of humanity. We wear the cross on our necks and I have no problem with you doing that. But let's remember what that cross really stands for. We know from what Jesus prayed what intensity was involved in the crucifixion for Jesus Himself. We'll hear more about that, I'm sure, on Friday. The hymn writer said Himself, He could not save. He on the cross must die. Or mercy cannot come to ruin sinners nigh. Yes, Christ, the Son of God, must bleed that sinners might from sin be freed. Himself He could not save, for justice must be done. Our sin's full weight must fall upon that sinless One. For nothing less can God accept in payment of that fearful debt. No wonder we go back to the cross and we sing, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to proclaim. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Father, not my will, my human will be done, but Thine. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You for obedience. Thank You for taking the commission from God the Father in fulfilling the great command to die as a substitute for guilty sinners like you and I. Guilty, violent, helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Ruined sinners can it be? Hallelujah! What a Savior! 
Do you appreciate my Savior? Do you appreciate your Savior? Do you appreciate the Lord Jesus? Can you give Him an amen, brothers and sisters? Oh man, no wonder the hymn writer said He demands my heart, my life, my all. What an offering that was presented to the Father. Jesus knew the magnitude of this offering of sin for sin. He sweat great drops of blood. This is beyond description. This is, brothers, a place where we must stop and pause. We must go up to the Mount of Olives with Him and we must hear the breathings. We must put our ear on His bosom and hear the heart of the Lord Jesus when He cries off these prayers. It was for you and I, brothers and sisters. We were the reason why the cup was what it was, full. Our iniquities were piled into that cup. The high priest had to do two things in, in, in reference to the twelve tribes. He had twelve names on his heart inscribed on the breastplate. Each one of the tribes, six on one side, six on the other. And he not only had them on the breastplate, but he had them on the shoulder pieces. Six and six. Jesus had us on his heart in Gethsemane. And then when he goes to Golgotha, he has us on his shoulders. Bearing our sins and scoffing, rude, condemned There He stood for us. No wonder the hymn writer says, Gethsemane, lest I forget, and there thy conflict see, thine agony and blood like sweat, and not remember thee. Hark, what bitter sounds of weeping from yon yon lonesome garden sweep. Tis the Lord His vigil keeping while His followers sink in sleep. He is speaking to the Father, tasting deep the bitter cup, yet He takes it, will rather for our sakes to drink it up. Oh, what love He loved me. Jesus gave Himself, my soul, for thee. Let's bow our head in remembrance of Gethsemane.